Hello, I'm your host, Kevin Gastola, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for supporting the next season of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. We had a very successful donation drive, and everyone who supported is appreciated. And now, let's start the next season. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new season of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're pleased to be starting off this year with our first episode, and our guest is Dar Jamal, who is a contributor and journalist for Truthout.org. So, Welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you guys again. And uh, he's returning. You guys who listen to us have probably heard him before. He has this exclusive story that is creating a lot of impact in the Pacific Northwest. It was published under the headline, Navy Uses U.S. Citizens as Pawns in Domestic War Games. And so... Uh, let's get into it. Uh, basically, what you were describing are these clandestine military exercises that the Navy SEALs are going to run in the Puget Sound and coastal areas of, of, the, of Washington State. Uh, and so get into the, what you uncovered here. Yeah, basically what I found through a source actually – uh, within the Navy was that uh, came across a couple of the Navy's own documents. And, and these were documents that they're not classified, but the Navy had effectively hidden them from public uh, accessibility by um, um, uh, calling them um, um, uh, something else. They, they basically made up their own kind of designation for these documents in such a way as to make it to where they would not be available if someone wanted to file a Freedom of Information Act to try to get this type of information. They basically made it so that these documents would not come up in those searches, but that they would not be uh, breaking the law um, by hiding them in the way that they did. And so um, uh, the, the source that I had was able, basically was able to provide these documents to me, which essentially outline a Navy, an ongoing Navy SEALs training regime that was going to start, uh, slated to start right now, literally yesterday to be specific, January 14, and be ongoing for the next two years where they would essentially have access to basically the entirety of the coastline of Washington State, including much, most of the Puget Sound area, uh, the, the coast going out the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and then the the West Coast uh, that, that's up uh, right there on the Pacific Ocean, and they would have access to coastlines, state parks, private areas, to where Navy SEALs would uh, be be launched onto the beach areas, uh, carrying quote unquote simulated weapons uh, in areas that include 68 beach and state park areas, and in, in, in everywhere that I just mentioned, and they would be able to access the beach areas residential areas, private lands, state parks, and, and go anytime, day or night, for exercises uh, starting yesterday uh, for the next two years without any public notification whatsoever. And they, have, they hadn't notified any of the relevant state, 
federal or local government officials. Uh, so things like um, police departments, uh, things like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, et cetera. Nobody had been notified. And even the governor's office in Washington State had not been uh, notified. And uh, needless to say, when we published these documents on Monday, uh, it has uh, basically created outrage across the better part of Washington State. And it has fortunately forced um, most of the local media outlets, including a lot of the bigger TV and newspapers outlets in Seattle and the surrounding area to start covering the story. And uh, um, so people are very, very upset about this, and and rightly so. You know, it's really stunning. Um, So many aspects of the story are really stunning, but one thing in particular was was the fact that this wasn't even cleared with the federal government agencies. that right that like the the federal government land that would be used for this um and it like it uh, violated all kinds of federal laws and state laws so it's like nobody has any control over what the navy what navy seals can train in and do in like on fed, like the federal government doesn't have control that's so bizarre to me well that's right that's that's exactly right and so i mean one one example is the Washington State Historic Preservation Officer, the acronym for this is SHPO, um, where this person uh, on the state level wasn't even uh, consulted uh, in, in the way that the Navy used a really slimy method of, of excluding uh, contact with these people that by law, by federal law, they were, they're, uh, they were supposed to be in contact with, to consult with, to do environmental impact statements, and then have public notifications and public comment periods, et cetera. And the Navy bypassed doing any of this. And, and one of the way, one of the me- chief means they used of doing it, which I get into in the story, is they used a, an exemption process called a categorical exclusion. CADEX is their uh, the uh, acronym for it. And, and they used it as a, as a way to sidestep uh, federal regulations that could have actually uh, been preventative of, of them doing these types of Navy SEAL wargaming along the coasts of, of Washington. And so um, by using these categorical exclusions, um, they, they basically uh, use this as a way to not have to do an environmental assessment or an environmental impact statement, which would be required on these types of exercises by federal law. Um, and so uh, I, I have emails that documented this where the Navy literally not just tried to, you know, not do these environmental impact statements and the other things that they're regulated by federal law to do, but literally active sought this way to bypass these regulations by using CADEXs and other things like this. So it's really, it's really, really troubling that, you know, not only are they just disregarding the federal law, they're basically actively finding ways to, to completely subvert it. And so, uh, and, and then that would allow them to do what they were then poised to do, which is conduct what they call realistic military trainings where, and this is why, you know, the title of the piece, I, I, I say that the Navy uses U.S. citizens as pawns in domestic war games, and I mean that quite literally because by the Navy's own documents that we publish and are online right now for folks to check out, um, they talk about using U.S. citizens as, hey, you know, they, they're training as, as a way of training their soldiers to say, hey, look, these these could be terrorists. We don't know the people that you might run into during these war game exercises, and so they're literally using 
U.S. citizens as pawns uh, to train their soldiers how to react in certain ways. And so they're not carrying weapons with live ammunition in them. But nevertheless, this is a very, very disconcerting step where they're actively using U.S. citizens in their war games without, without our consent, without even our knowledge, and certainly without any advanced notification of what they're going to be doing. And then this sets up a situation where literally you will have Navy SEALs swimming in teams through marinas where people are living on boats. They're not going to know what's happening. They're not going to know who these people are. Uh, you're going to have Navy SEALs teams going through residential neighborhoods, potentially in the middle of the night with simulated weapons, um, going through state park and hiking trails at night during the day with simulated weapons, sometimes even actively carrying out wargaming exercises. So needless to say, you don't have to use a lot of imagination to see that the potential for disaster, for someone being shot, for someone else getting afraid and pulling a gun on these people since we, you know, we're, uh, you know, we live in such a heavily weaponized uh, uh, country that, you know, the potential for accidents is, is very high, not even to speak of just basic civil rights and civil liberties that are going to be infringed upon by these exercises. Well, so there's like two points there. Well, first is when, I mean, when we say war games, like war games sounds almost like something fun, even though it's war games. But I mean, these are Navy SEALs that typically operate in like kill teams, basically. Like that's kind of what they do when they go abroad, right? Like, mm. so I imagine that that's the sort of training that's being conducted as well is like kill teams operating together and how they function. And then you'd mentioned, um, you know, the, the fact that uh, they're doing, they're using like the U.S. population as pawns, right? So at some point, I mean, um, you know, could this, could these kinds of exercises at some point like be used actually against U.S. citizens? Because like domestically on, like on U.S. soil, I mean, if that's where they're practicing it, because, you know, this, this these parts of like the West Coast aren't exactly they don't exactly look like and operate like parts of the world where the U.S. military is conducting operations like this. Well, it's uh, yeah, that's those are both two really good points. And let me let me first start with just using the Navy's own exact language for their plans, because that's why I think one reason this story is so explosive is it's extremely uh, alarming and disconcerting information and it's not being made up. I mean, I am quoting directly from the Navy itself. And the Navy, of course, was forced to confirm that, yes, these are indeed our documents. And so their plans include the use of what they call special reconnaissance teams conducting patrols, which are then authorized to go on simulated, quote, direct action missions, end quote. And so their definition of a direct action is, quote, short-duration strikes and other small-scale offensive actions conducted as a special operation in hostile, denied, or politically sensitive environments and which employ specialized military capabilities to seize, destroy, capture, exploit, recover, or damage designated targets. Mm -hmm. So that's their own lingo. And then I include a lot of different links um, that, that discuss, you know, hey, this is a domestic military expansionism going on across the entire country. Uh, Operation Jade Helm from last year was one example of this. This is basically a mini version of Operation Jade Helm. And I say mini, it involves, you know, essentially the entire coastline of Washington state. But compared to Jade Helm, that's still small. Uh, and this is happening all over. And, and, and it, it does come on the back of 
several uh, instances of extremely abusive, unlawful behavior by naval, naval SEALs overseas, detainee abuse killings, detainee I'm sorry, detainee killings and abuse um, documented even in mainstream sources like the New York Times. Um, so it is very, very disconcerting. And then the, the second question you pose of, you know, what so, you know, what why is this training happening and, and what are the future implications? Well, again, I, I like to cite the, the military's own documents, because if I just say this, someone might say, well, he's, he's sounding a bit like a conspiracy theorist. But according to the Quadrennial Defense Review Report from the Pentagon, these types of, of trainings are, are for two purposes. One, it is prepared for future potential wars against countries that would have coastlines like this. And, and, and I think it's, you know, again, quoting that document, we talk about China, we talk about Russia. Um, so we look at future resource wars, that type of thing. Uh, and then secondly, again, according to the Quadrennial Defense Review Report, we look at the military preparing for uh, two potentialities. One, uh, domestic unrest caused by climate change exacerbated situations. So uh, unrest due to lack of food and water in big urban environments or even on the outskirts of those environments and then um, two, economic unrest. Uh, I, I think they're tied together, but the, quad, the Quadrennial Defense Review Report addresses them as two separate things, you know, domestic unrest from um, upheaval caused by lack of food and water availability, climate change related, and then uh, or a giant, another giant economic crash, like, say, post-2008 economic crash, but even worse, where, again, you would have riots happening in urban centers or, or sometimes in outlying areas if, you know, if there's not enough money and the economy um, basically hits a point of criticality where people literally can't find enough food and, and water. So the military is actively preparing for, for both of those two potentialities, and, and, and that's, that's fact. I mean, that's according to the Pentagon's own words. I wanted to emphasize that some of these operations would be happening in peace parks in Washington, and maybe you could spend a little time talking about how some of these places have been designated as such by citizens in Washington. That's right. One of the uh, the places that I, I, I use an example, it's actually right nearby the town uh, where I live in Port Townsend, Washington. It's on the northeast tip of the Olympic Peninsula, and there is a uh, there is a, a a park there that it's it's well known around the area as a peace park because it's essentially it's an it's an old military base that was there when there was gun emplacements there um, back excuse me back in the turn of the century where uh, there there was actually a fort there. Uh, where the you know the military was prepared in, in, in case there was some sort of a an, a, um, a naval invasion coming in the strait, but there's a place it's called it's now Fort Warden State Park, and it's essentially been turned uh, away. It's not really even thought of by locals as a a military base or a former military base. It's essentially been turned into uh, an area for art, where uh, there's artist residencies there. There's a big art uh, uh, entity called Centrum that hosts regular artist workshops, um, music fests all through the summer and that kind of thing. And um, also uh, on top 
of the area out nearby that kind of overlooks the strait. It's a really beautiful area. There's a place called Memories Vault, which uh, people can go and sit in and contemplate. And that area particularly is called the Peace Park. And if you look at the Navy's own documents, they have that whole area mapped out. You can pull up a specific slide and look. It shows you where exactly they would intend to land on the beaches and then the areas that they would go up into Fort Warden State Park and conduct uh, essentially paintball wargaming exercises against each other. Uh, so they would literally go up into this area, and, and that Peace Park is literally right smack in the middle of the area that they outline in their maps, where they would literally be carrying out war game exercises right in the middle of a Peace Park that's right in the middle of a state park. And and in isolation, it's alarming, but uh, to what extent is this an expansion? I mean, you, you said this is expansionism, but how would you contextualize this? Because... They've done military exercises in parts of the country, and it's probably been happening for decades now at this point. So I guess what's – is what's alarming is that they're specifically singling out people as pawns and part of the uh, the exercise? That is a, a, that is a good, very good point because I think that's – that is a very recent shift in, in to, to my eyes – probably the most disconcerting thing. I mean, the military has always carried out large exercises they, around the country, uh, off the coast, even on land. They have millions and millions of acres, literally, of, of, of federal land that is designated specifically and only for uh, military exercise training across, you know, it's in, in all 50 states, you can find land like this. And so that's not new. What is new is this encroachment onto um, state parks, national parks, and, and now, more recently, as we saw in Jade Helm and as we're seeing now in the Pacific Northwest, uh, their intentional use of going into private residential areas and, and literally having training exercises specifically set up to go do that with the expectation that they will run into citizens and then train their soldiers how to prepare for that, to treat these citizens as potential enemy combatants, as potential terrorists, as potential troublemakers, etc. And so they not necessarily that they're going to go out and start detaining people or dragging them into their war games, but literally training, starting to train their soldiers mentally to prepare for that uh, in the future as, as a possibility that, hey, you might you know, go into a residential neighborhood on the outskirts of this tiny little town in the Pacific Northwest called Port Townsend, which is basically known as an, an art town, uh, and, and run into someone on, on their organic farm, uh, their urban organic farm, and then be, hey, but this could be a potential terrorist, so how are we going to behave? And so then literally bringing people uh, unwittingly into their exercises as pawns. And, and that is a new thing that we've we we've not I've not run across this so far except in the last year and Jade Helm is really the first most egregious example and then now this one where literally it is in their own documentation uh, that we want to bring citizens into these war games uh, so that our soldiers so we can start mentally preparing our soldiers for this eventuality in the future. Yeah, man, it's like normalizing the idea that you're that the um, that domestically citizens can you know any of them can be can be enemies. That's exactly right. And I think that's 
that's really the, you know, I would, I would underscore that what you just said in that it's, it is kind of passing through a barrier of separation that should have always existed. You know, I mean, theoretically the military, uh, is, is, is there to protect, uh, uh, citizens from, from external harm. And instead they're behaving the opposite where we're, we're going to bring you in as part of the military machine and start using you to train against. And, and in fact, even, even portraying you as a potential enemy and threat. I mean, you can find pictures. Uh, there was a recent story, a follow-up on the Jade Helm exercises across the, the southern part of the country last year that, of course, the military ended up downplaying. But you can find, you know, they literally have printed out posters of soccer moms with pistols and use them as target practice in these exercises. Oh, my so, God. So, no, I'm not. You can easily find that online right now. Gawker did a story on this, and you can pull that up and see. It, it was in Mississippi, and it's it's very, very disconcerting, literally, you know, using U.S., you know, posters of U.S. citizens as target practice. And so it's, they're already well advanced into doing this. And it's, and again, it's being done without public consent, without notification. They're completely circumnavigating around any and all the federal regulations and state regulations that should be there to force them to have public comment periods, public information periods, conducting environmental impact statements, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's you know, a vast array of federal regulations set up that they are bound by law to follow for every one of their exercises that that could involve the public in any 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 way, shape, or fashion. And they are actively uh, either completely disregarding this or or working to completely undermine that process. And so it is. That's another part of this story that's a very very disconcerting process. You know, not even to talk about you know, the environmental impacts and the, the economic impacts on local fishing industries. And when they do this, it would, you know, if, so if they go close a big sector of beach line right in the middle of crabbing season, how does that affect local crabbers and local fishermen? And then not even to talk about, you know, when they're using sonar weapons and, and doing weapons testing and other things that I've reported on, you know, that effect on birds and, and amphibians and, and, and wildlife and let alone, you know, they're the effects of these these weapons like electromagnetic warfare training on humans and and the sound of the jets and all of these impacts. I mean, it's a you know, there's multiple stories happening here at the same time. But we're talking about essentially what amounts to a a, a direct assault on 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 humans in the environment from all these exercises. And and they're only continuing to expand and only when. I'm able to come across uh, and get my hands on some of their own documents that show the egregiousness of their actions and then push this out there. Only then have I seen some other outlets starting to cover it. But from my perspective as a journalist, looking at how big this story is and how the military is just running rampant at this point domestically with these exercises, I still stand amazed that that nobody else is covering it. Yeah, like where are the state's rights advocates? Mm Mm-hmm. Jeez. I wanted to ask you about some of your recent reporting on climate disruption because it's what uh, you do a lot about. And also, I-, I think that you could say that aspects of this coverage of these war games do actually tie in, especially when the Pentagon is such a significant, in fact, the largest contributor to climate disruption in the world. Uh, so you just you did a report about the melting Arctic, and uh, I know this is something that you were also doing uh, work on uh, 
back in 2015, and, and this seems to be a kind of a follow-up. Uh, but you were looking at the way it is impacting global weather patterns, and it is rather alarming. And I just wondered if you could sum up some of what you were looking at. Right. That more recent story that I, I did on this, I talked to several experts, folks from the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder and and uh, folks from uh, uh, Bob Henson, a meteorologist with the Weather Underground, uh, and and some other folks, and it, and it is just just to really try to give our readers a, a deeper understanding of, you know, some of the the more complex impacts of climate disruption. So, for example, the melting Arctic's impacts on on the the global climate. One of the most uh, dramatic impacts it's having is it's causing the jet stream to to weaken and start to kind of stray away from the typical patterns that it usually runs in, and that's shifting weather patterns globally. It's cause it's causing longer droughts, more intense heat waves, uh, extreme we- uh, weather and temperature events. So, like in the U.S., for example, the two most blatant examples are the California drought. That is that is in large part not not solely a result of, but in large part a result of the shifting of the jet stream uh, deeper and further away from where it usually runs. And so it's caused this giant um, uh, lack of uh, uh, precipitation over the the general California area that's persisting. And California is getting some rain right now. But if you look at the longer trend over several years, it's set up to basically, it's it's now in the midst of a mega drought that's, that's being pushed uh, at least in part from uh, the shifting of the jet stream by what's happening in the Arctic. And then if you look at the other side of the country on the Northeast, we've seen these, um, these, these dramatically cold weather events. Uh, the, you know, they've been referred to as the Arctic vortex. That's also a result of you know, longer and deeper cold snaps uh, that are a result of the shift of the jet stream. So those, those are a couple of really, really dramatic uh, evidence that we, we see, uh, as well as, of course, just the fact of when you start, you know, and then the other, I think, probably the most commonly known uh, positive uh, feedback loop that's generated from climate disruption is the melting of the Arctic ice cap. So as that ice cap melts from, you know, too warm of an atmosphere that we, we've created, then it opens up more seawater, which is dark. And instead of reflecting, as the ice did, the light, the solar radiation back into space, uh, it, it's absorbed into the ocean, which warms, which then speeds up the warming process, which which then causes it to melt further and faster and absorb even more, and hence the runaway positive feedback loop. So that's that's another example. And then to talk about the ecological impacts of that the ecosystem up there is basically being decimated. You know, polar bears are on the. You know, we're going to see those go extinct probably. Uh, within the next 20 to 30 years maximum because they won't be able to exist on land once the Arctic ice cap starts melting completely in the summers, which is expected to do by 2040 at the absolute latest. Uh, Some scientists even saying that even as early as the end of next summer, we could start to see um, ice-free periods of, of the Arctic by the end of the summer. Maybe they just last a week or so, but those then would start expanding on, on an annual basis. So these, these are just some of the impacts we're seeing. And, you know, point, point, you know, as if to kind of underscore the point, the last nine years have been um, the nine, uh, the nine years, every succeeding year has been in the top nine years of, of uh, lower CPAC in the Arctic uh, in, in all of recorded history. 
Jesus. How do you square like what you just said with um, the climate summit um, agreement? I don't know if you're like how familiar you are with it or like if you've looked at it in depth or anything. I did. And, you know, I'm of the James Hansen, you know, the noted uh, climate scientist, James Hansen, who used to run NASA's uh, Goddard Institute, who basically uh, said that the the, the, the COP 21 in Paris was a bunch of BS. It was, it was basically a joke. And, and, you know, and I, what I, what I, what I've been saying about this, this so-called climate conference was, you know, they, there are all this talk and hubbub was about trying to limit, uh, the global temperature from going above a two C increase above pre-industrial baseline temperature levels. Well, that's a politically agreed upon goal. There's no scientific basis for that goal whatsoever. The scientific consensus, which actually Hansen and several of his other esteemed colleagues noted in a report that came out over a year ago at this point, was that actually the maximum temperature that we we need to be shooting for to allow global warming to to reach would be 1C above pre-industrial baselines. Well, a week before the COP21 in Paris started, the UK's Met Office announced we're already over, we just passed 1C. <laughs> um, three weeks before that, the, U, the head of the UN Environment Program announced that even if all the countries coming to the COP21 in Paris adhered to all of the goals they were bringing to the table, best case scenario, like everyone agreed on everything, uh, that we're already, just because of the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere, we're already locked into a minimum of 3.7 C warming by 2100. And then so you have the COP21, you have all the celebrity journalists there, and you have all the back padding and the pictures, and everyone's happy that they've agreed upon these targets that aren't even, they're, they're not even supposed to start happening until 2020, and none of it's binding. And it's it's you know there's the you know it's it's amazing to me that anyone has even taken it seriously or given it any media attention whatsoever because it's really kind of a let's let's get together and have a big PR show to make it appear as though global governments are doing something when in reality there's nothing binding that's come out of it and there's there's really nothing that's going to change the course of how countries like the U.S. or China or India. The, the biggest CO2 emitters on the planet are going to make the dramatic changes uh, that, that we would have to make to, to really see anything that would even begin to mitigate the mess that we're in. It, it increasingly seems like you're reporting on the end days of planet Earth. <laughs> so I'll make my last question. I, I know that maybe you don't want to be the story, but I know we've sort of talked about the impact personally on covering something so with so much gravity uh, and I just want to check in on you. Like, how are you handling this? Like, how how do you continue to cover this every single day? I think that's an important question, not just for me, but for everyone taking in this information. Because if you if you really look at how far along we are and how dramatic our situation is and what that means for the future of the planet, for the future of all species on the planet, including humans, um, we are in, you know, the biggest crisis ever that humans have ever faced. And, 
And uh, the reality, you know, is that we've, we've entered the sixth mass extinction. That's scientific fact. We're now in an era called the Anthropocene, the, a human-generated era where we have literally changed the uh, oceans and the atmosphere and, and to a large extent, geology of the planet. Um, and, and so what does this mean and how do we live now? How do we live going forward where... Uh, for the first time in history, we can't bank on the fact that there will be a future. And I, for me personally, what it means and, and what it's kind of caused me to do is I have to regularly go back out into nature for extended periods of time uh, to the places that are most important to me and that feed me the most. And so for me, that's the mountains. And so I almost every week I'm finding ways to get up into the mountains, uh, either for a day trip or ideally for uh, a one or two night overnight trip, climbing trip up in there, because that's how I maintain perspective. And it's what feeds me and it's being close to places that I love on the planet. And that's basically what helps balance out um, really all the, the tough information that I'm digging up and writing about during the week. And I think also, you know, a, a reconnection with the planet is, is I think imperative at this point before we can even talk about what are we going to do to mitigate this situation or what are we going to do to try to live in what's going to be a very different planet in the future? Uh, the first thing I think any of us need to do for our own sanity is really deeply reconnect to nature uh, as, as quickly and as, deep, and as deeply as we can. And so I think, you know, the thought I would leave with folks is, you know, what's your favorite place in nature? You know, where is it the ocean? Is it the mountains? Is it the forest? Is it rivers? Um, you know, and, and, and how do you like to go be in those places? Is it camping? Is it fishing? I mean, what is it? And, and when's the last time you've been there? And I think we need to start there. We all need to get back out there. And I think, you know, start reconnecting to the planet because I think that disconnect from the planet is the core of, of, of the problem of, of what's caused us to be in the situation that we're in today. And I guess, uh, you know, we should probably all start building underground bunkers at some point and, like, turn into survivalists. I mean, it does. It sounds really, really dark and stark and, like, and kind of scary in terms of, like, what the future holds. But that's a good point, getting back into nature. Um, well, I, I think you're really suggesting that maybe there's a reversal in the way that humans are, are trending, that, that we need to look for a reversal, because it does feel like though I can't point to anything empirical in saying this. this is more of just a feeling, but it just feel like a lot of humanity is into just focusing on screens inside of their homes and people do not go outdoors as much anymore. That's exactly right. And that's, that's a perfect symptom of the problem that I'm talking about. And I think that rather than closing down and becoming more insular and diving deeper into electronics and, and, or, or, or going into doomsday scenarios, I think, you know, we need to do the opposite. We need to open up. And I think the best way to do that is getting out into nature and being around people more. And, you know, and I'm not like anti-technology. I mean, my, my, my livelihood depends on using computer to research and write and, and, and do my work. But, um, Nevertheless, I think it's imperative for all of us to kind of open back up to the world and to each other because uh, it's a disconnect from nature. And then, you know, an immediate aftermath of that is a disconnect from each other uh, that I think is really at the core root of, of the problem that, you know, how we've been able to disconnect so much from the planet that 
as a species, we are literally killing ourselves by making the planet that we are completely 100% reliant upon for our own lives, making it unlivable to humans. And so, um, you know, the first step, the first antidote, I think, to that is, well, we, we need to reconnect. And then, plus, in that way, more people are going to become dramatically aware of, of what's happening and the changes around them. And, and um, you know, and again, not as kind of a panacea solution, hey, go do this and let's let's fix things and get back on track. But, you know, there's still stuff out there to go see. There's still glaciers and ice fields and things in nature that are there that are not going to be there for um, a whole lot longer. You know, I mean, literally by 2100, this planet's going to look dramatically different than it does right now. And so we need to go out there and be in it right now. And, and again, just literally taking that at face value, not as a form of activism or that therefore we're going to go save the world or anything like that. But let's just start with the basics of, you know, we need, we need to get back to what's real. Well, thank you, Dar, for uh, giving us your time and uh, talking to us about all of this very important journalism that I think more reporters should be doing. Uh, And uh, wish you the best with your work for Truth Out. Well, thanks a lot. Always good to be with you guys. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. And uh, we're back. We're glad to be back. Hey, Rania, how are you doing? I'm good, Kevin. How are you? We're, we're so glad to be starting off this season. And, uh, of course, we're going to have a much shorter discussion because we had a very excellent long interview with Dar. Uh, so we'll get right to it. Uh, we're going to kind of recap some of what's been going on the past few weeks. We haven't had a show. Um, and... I suppose, why don't you start off, like, we've had this thing happening where it happened during the holidays of 2015, and then the first couple of weeks of January, it was uh, a pressing concern where the uh, immigration and customs and enforcement was, um, they, ICE was raiding people's homes. Actually, this was, a, so this is something they started talking about during the holidays, but it was a plan that went into effect, um... On, I think, on January 1st. So, like, January 1st, January 2nd. Like, it was, like, a New Year's uh, operation. Okay. Um, but they also, um, I guess, maybe also part of my confusion is that they split it into stages. So, like, people, families that get rounded up were taken to detention centers. And then they get deported from the detention centers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, like, there was a few families, not all of them, but, like, very few that got to stay because of, like, last-minute stays that were filed by by immigration attorneys with, like, certain, um, you know, immigrant rights groups. But overall, so what happened is the Obama administration um, has executed this uh, plan of rounding up, um, and I, I mean actually rounding up, like, ICE thugs, like, from the, you know, from Immigration and Customs Enforcement showing up at people's homes in um, in the early morning, like, when it's still dark, like, to... Um, to you know, and then like raiding the homes, looking for um, particular people that the undocumented immigrants uh, to take to. And actually, I shouldn't even, you know, we shouldn't even say undocumented immigrants. Let's say refugees, because these are mothers and children who uh, came here on, a, you know, a lot of the children unaccompanied came here a couple years ago from Central America um, because of, you know, fleeing violence um, from certain Central American countries. And uh, 
they basically qualify for asylum. It's just the U.S. asylum law isn't being applied appropriately. A lot of them are being given an opportunity to really make their case for asylum, but they qualify for the most part. Like if they're deported, they, they could be killed. Um, and so that's who's being rounded up is actual like refugees. Um, and again, mothers and children, I think the youngest of them was like a four-year-old child was like taken away, like in a, like, you know, by immigration and customs enforcement. Um, and it kind of the way that the way that the raids were being described, I mean, they just came to the house, woke everyone up, like terrified the children, um, searching for particular people. And yeah, they ended up taking them to detention facilities and then deporting them. Um, and it's really horrifying because, you know, this is happening obviously under Obama, but it was crazy because Donald Trump was praising it and basically taking credit for it. And this is a very Trump-esque style policy that's happening under a, pre- you know, under a Democratic a Democrat in office um, who hasn't been really getting reamed on it at all. Like, I, you know, he had this, I know you want to talk about a state of the union real quick, but like, you know, before we get to that, just the fact that his state of the union, like he got praised for saying really nice things, sort of pushing back against some of the, um, right wing, uh, bigotry and, 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 um, an extremist rhetoric we've been hearing against Muslims, um, and just talking about like standing up for the oppressed. I mean, he said some really nice things in his address and it's just like, how can this be coming from you? Like given what you're doing to refugee children right now. Um, and in that same time frame, I mean, he cried, like there was the gun control legislation and Obama, was announcing, I'm, I'm sorry, the executive action, and Obama was announcing it at a press conference, and he started crying, and that got a lot of attention. Of course, like, Democrats praised him for crying, and then Republicans were like, he's a weak sissy boy. But, like, you know, my criticism is just, like, not even criticism, but just it was so bizarre to see him crying over dead children. Like, you're you're right. You're to your policy. Like you are in control and you are rounding up children and sending them back to places where they will maybe be killed. Um, and I don't like, it's like, you don't seem to care about that. So I don't know how that, you know, just like, like a sociopathic behavior to me to see somebody who's doing what he's doing right now. Also crying over dead children. Um, but yeah, that's what's happening with refugees right now in this country. Yeah. And the attitude, uh, I have to quote, the Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, who, by the way, if a nuclear bomb had been dropped on everybody during the State of the Union, would have become our president. <laughs> um, and this is what he had to say. It should come as no surprise that we are raiding families. Um, and he said, I have said publicly for months that individuals who constitute enforcement priorities, including families and unaccompanied children, will be removed. So it's like they're very much... Uh, standing behind this as all of this outrage spreads against the deporting of families who nobody is arguing, you know, no, they don't dispute that these are people who have been denied asylum. They very much are defending that like, okay, well, if they're not going to get asylum because we denied them, then they have to go back to these countries. Yeah. The Los Angeles times wrote an editorial, like an actual editorial by the editorial board supporting these, um, these deportations because the rule of law or something about the something about the rule of law. And it's just like, you know what? Like go shove the rule of law up your ass. Like <laughs> it's just so bizarre. I mean, I, and I, you know, it's actually not fair for me to say that nobody cares. Like 
to be to be fair, like every all the Democrat, like even Hillary Clinton of all people, issued a statement um, condemning Obama's, you know, content to condemning what DHS is doing right now. So it's it is something that people are not happy about. It's just, I mean, it's just like it just all of it's there's just so much posturing, and you know, the actual policy itself is a form of posturing, like. It's like, you know, Obama saying it's like the, the the whole purpose is to be is to deter people from from um from coming into the country. And it's like, dude, like it's you're deporting children to like back to violence. Like, that's just cruel. Like, it's a it's cruelty that I just I don't even understand the, you know, the pragmatic idea behind that at all. Other than just being cruel. Um, OK, you know. so uh, I want to just highlight one part of President Obama's State of the Union, and most of the time, these addresses are very forgettable, but I suppose because this was as uh, boisterous and proud, I want to highlight this thing where Obama said, uh, let me tell you something, the United, the United States of America is the most powerful nation on Earth, period, and then there was wild applause, Period. It's not even close. It's not even close. And then I assume that at this point you couldn't even hear yourself talking to the person next to you. And he continued, it's not even close. We spend more on our military than the next eight nations combined. Our troops are the finest fighting force in the history of the world. And now this like jingoism is just like the whole place. The, the Capitol Hill probably sounded like it was going to come down and collapse on everybody. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on, no nation attacks us directly or our allies because they know that's the path to ruin. Surveys show our standing around the world is higher than when I was elected to this office. And, of course, he also said, we spend more on our military than the next eight nations combined. And he said it as a positive thing. He wasn't uh, saying that as, like... Yeah, he, he was wasn't like just... It wasn't, like, to reassure people, because from his... You know, from, from the right, you'll get this argument that we no longer stand for strength, that Obama is someone who wants to scold America for being an arrogant global power. And, uh... So he wasn't just saying that to show them that they were wrong. Like, you no, know, like, alone, like, he was celebrating that we spend so much time. I mean, so, spend so many uh, resources building up our military. Yeah, I mean, he was basically just wagging America's dick. Yeah. And, like, you know, proudly just being like, hey, check it out. We have the biggest one in the world. Yeah, people <laughs> don't look to Beijing or Moscow to lead. They call us. They call us, even though they're all apparently... I love. I love also, like, the weird... Um, paradox there is like in one sentence he's like he's like nobody messes with us because we'll ruin them and then in the next sentence he's like everyone looks to us for leadership but the thing that (laughs) the reason why I really wanted to raise this was you know not only that I wanted to go to the end here where he goes he says that's the country we love. He's just gone through like all these individuals that he's highlighting. This this thing that has become this cliche that Obama always does in every single piece, uh, like sorry, in every single speech that he gives, where he's like, "There's the elderly woman who walks down the street. There's the student that sits in school and does his schoolwork and all this <laughs> other stuff." Um, and by the way, I I I had never really like called him out on it before but during the address i was listening and i thought 
you know, none of these examples that you give actually fit into the thing that you're claiming to celebrate, which is that people have forced change. Like, if you go through all his examples, none of these people would be in Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Like, these aren't people who created change. They they basically cope with oppression. <laughs> That's exactly. She's a student that goes to school just trying to get their work done. <laughs> and the teacher that goes there to teach the student. It's like, like it Even, was kind of what he said. Like, the cop that's like a good cop. It's like a Chicago teacher that doesn't have air conditioning but still teaches their students even when their student doesn't have any lunch money to buy lunch. But pencils or school books. <laughs> it's like, this isn't a good thing. Like, like, these, are the, these are the Americans that make America great. The ones but, who... But he goes on and he says, that's the country we love, clear-eyed, big-hearted, undaunted by challenge. Yeah, that Opt- was like totally optimistic, optimistic that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Well, uh-huh. I just have to say that, you know, if we have the, a military that's bigger than the next eight nations combined, how can you stand there and claim to have unarmed truth? Yeah, no, it's like, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's all just like none of it. It's all just nice slogans. Like, that's all that whole speech was. I was actually a little disappointed. He's usually a little, um, he's usually a little more captivating. It was like a boring, long speech. And he started, and the thing is, he started off saying it was going to be short, and it wasn't. Um, there was one line that really made me mad, um, but in a, in a mad way where I was like, of course, and I laughed. But when he was just like... The Middle East is in chaos because of problems that go back millennia. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> but- and one of the things that has become inseparable is that when the State of the Union rolls around, we also have this anniversary of Guantanamo. Yeah. Uh, because the prison was opened 14 years ago. And it was a couple weeks before the State of the Union. It was like, you know, a matter of days before Bush delivered the State of the Union. Yeah, January 11th, right? Yeah, right. So so every time that that anniversary comes around, you then have everyone looking for Obama to say something about Guantanamo. And of course, again, again, as he has always done, he has promised to continue to shut down the prison at Guantanamo. Um, he says it's expensive, it's unnecessary, it's a recruitment brochure for our enemies, and there's a better way. This is like very identical to the line that he's delivered in every single State of the Union address. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to move to talking about this. I mean, the thing is, like, it's not just a recruitment brochure. I wouldn't minimize it like that. I mean, the issue is that there's, as we've talked about on our show... There's something very deeply inhumane about what's happening to people there in this prison. And a lot of people probably missed this story. I wanted to highlight it. um, That Reuters actually did this very good investigation um, or special report on one of the detainees who we've talked about. His name's Tarek Baoda. And uh, he's now like 74 pounds. To do a quick recap, he's a Yemeni, which means, you know, Not only has he suffered because of the abuse inside the prison, but he's also had this difficulty getting released because the Obama administration has uh, punished people who are Yemeni and said they can't go back to their homes in Yemen because of war happening there. And they just don't believe that they're not going to return to violence if they release them. So 
Tarek is still inside of a prison and uh, he's pushed to be released. He's filed a lawsuit and uh, the Obama administration is fighting his release. Uh, and so what happened is a delegation of, of officials, uh, they don't say what country here. I suppose it doesn't exactly matter. But uh, some foreign delegation looking to try and accept Tarek and resettle him came to the Pentagon. Um, and uh, apparently the Pentagon has been thwarting delegations that have come to Guantanamo and tried to get people to come to their country. And the Pentagon is putting all these very like onerous restrictions on people who come, like saying you only can have 45 minutes with people to talk to them. You, you know, if you want to meet with detainees, you can't stay here on the base for more than 24 hours. And if you need more days, you can go to like Miami and you can, you, we can spend money and, and like the state department even so is like involved in trying to get in and help resettle detainees. But the Pentagon is resisting those efforts. Oh, Obama's doing a really good job closing Guantanamo. And uh, and of course, he's in denial. Like, he doesn't want to admit that this is what's happening. I mean, yeah. on, the, on the other hand, there were 10 people from the prison who did... Uh, actually, in the last few weeks, there's been 10 to 15 people who have been released from Guantanamo. So uh, it is now, for the first time, below 100 prisoners. But... Um, Still not closed! But we still talk about it uh, whenever there's any sort of news coverage. We still talk about it in terms of, like, will Obama be able to get that check mark where he can say he fulfilled a promise? Like, it's it's not like we talk about the prison in terms of the people who are actually there. Right. You know, like we, the, the actual people who, like, <laughs> that, that have been destroyed by it, like, whose lives have been completely, like, decimated by it. Um you know, I uh, I wanted to mention a couple things about. I won't go too deep into it, but um, just uh, you know, we're talking about refugees in this country, and then I just wanted to mention a couple things um, that have happened with the new year so far with refugees in Europe um, that are just like some crazy um, schemes taking place. Um, so in Denmark right now, Denmark is trying to pass a plan. I pass a law that allows the country to seize the um, assets and valuables of refugees um, when they come into the country. Uh, so think about that for a minute. Um, like I just okay. So like I am fleeing war. Um, I have nothing but the clothes on my back and like maybe if, like my passport. I guess if it didn't sink, you know, on my way here. Um, I finally get to like a country where I'm inside of it and can apply for asylum. And like, you want to take the couple, like my ring away. Like, like, like I have like a, like a couple hundred bucks I brought with me. I managed to still have, like I brought, it's everything I have. And like this, this state wants to seize it from me. Um, it's just, that's insane to me. You're just like robbing homeless people. Uh, and Denmark is doing that, like, they want to do that as, like, a form of, de uh, to deter, you know, refugees from coming. Um, and it's something that Switzerland has been doing. Switzerland has been seizing assets from refugees. And they're saying that this is to cover the costs 
of housing them. Um, so refugees with like a thousand Swiss francs, I don't know what that translates into in, in U.S. dollars, but I don't, I mean, either way, that's not a lot of money. It translates, it, it, um, it's about 690 pounds. So probably like, uh, like $1,500. I don't, I don't know what the rate is, so I'm not going to pretend like I know, but I know it's not anything extravagant. Okay. So like, um, imagine if that's what you brought with you. Like you brought, say you brought 2000 bucks with you. Like if that's all you have, <laughs> that's nothing. And they, they want to seize that from you. That's crazy. Um, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is Finland. I mean, this is like you get, it's just so insane. It's hard to believe, but the government is Finland. Finland is saying that they're going to require asylum seekers to work for free to pay for their, um, for to, to like pay for their, um, what I, I guess their, their whatever that, what are they even giving them? To pay for what? I'm not really sure. I guess when you come to a country, there's paperwork. Uh, is this maybe, in maybe order they to give you like share in the housing, the different welfare? No, this is like you work for free. Oh, like requiring them to work for free, which is funny to me that like you know at first I was like, okay, this can't be like what it actually says, but like Reuters has a piece on it. The new measure, it's like, um, yeah, it's like the government. Um, like uh, the economy, it's, well, I guess the, the economy is set to shrink. Um, Anti-immigrant you know, immigrant sentiment has been increased. But yeah, it's saying the government said it will start assigning work to working age asylum seekers on the grounds that meaningful, act, meaningful action would help relieve their frustration. Um, and they're by, the, by frustration, I think they're talking about sexual frustration because it's saying anti-immigrant sentiment has increased after police um, last month reported it was investigating a few cases where asylum seekers, seekers are suspected of rape. Um, and this has become like a thing, even though in Finland there hasn't been much violence at all because there's not that many, like, there's not that many refugees there. But, and we can talk about that more next week, um, and go more into it. There was like this, you know, over the, over New Year's Eve, there was a bunch of like drunk, you know, there was like a bunch of hoodlums in, um, in Cologne and Germany, um, who were going around like, you know, robbing people and like sexually assaulting women. And it's awful. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, they were described as having been of, like, Arab and North African descent. And some of the people who've been arrested have actually been asylum seekers. So, of course, like, like you know, no group is, is, is um, virtuous. <laughs> of course, if you have a million people come into your, you know, come into a country, million refugees, like, there are going to be people among them who commit crimes. Like, that's just, that's of any group. That's true of any group. Um, and so we can go more in depth into that later. But, like... The point is, is the backlash to that has been, um, you know, Arabs are Arabs and, and North Africans are savages and they're sexually repressed misogynists and they want to rape our white women. And there's already a common theme that runs through fascist thinking, um, not just in Europe, but here in this country as well, um, when it comes to refugees and when it comes to like, you know, um, brown people, black people in general, but particularly foreigners. And so this is just like, you know, they're just they're, they're basically exploiting this like right wing parties and right wing figures are exploiting this. And, you know, right wing groups are like um, 
are, are like in Finland. I know that there's like the like right wing militias are patrolling certain towns to protect white Finnish women from um, from refugee men. So that's what's happening right now. So yeah, the the fact that the government is saying that they'll start assigning work to working age asylum seekers on the grounds that meaningful action would help relieve their frustration, like it's like, dude, you're basically saying. Um, uh, you're gonna give. You're gonna make people work for free to stop them from raping, is what they're saying. Um, and and yeah, it just it's crazy to me that like Reuters described it as as they were require them to work without pay because like isn't that just slavery? Right. Like you can get cheap labor or actually free labor. Yeah, like that's just slavery. Like it's like we're, we're required to work without pay for free. Required to work for free is slavery. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that's happening there. I mean, it's just like a mess. Um, and I mean, it's it's just it's so ludicrous. It's like so absurd. Like I I don't. It's like it, it just sounds almost like a parody. Like that can't be real, but it is. So one more thing, and then we'll end our show. Uh, we all went into the first week of the new year with the militia, the Bundy militia that took over the wildlife refuge and. For some reason, that's still going. I can't believe that's still a thing that's happening. <laughs> but that's the world we live in. And I guess I wanted to end on this note of just saying how pleasant it is to wake up to videos of Ritzheimer, of, of, of him just taking bags of dicks and throwing them on the floor and yelling in rage and... I, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I saw that uh, some prankster is uh, sending him uh, 55 gallons of lube. I, everyone out there just continue sending him all this wild and crazy sex stuff. Like, please, <laughs> just do it. It's, it's, it's the best. And yeah, also, they were like, basically, like, stop sending us dildos. And <laughs> also, so also, I have to say that, like, if uh, you're an armed group, uh, please go. Go to the refuge and also try to take your stand because I think we should get all these militias just in this concentrated location <laughs> and, like, they can go into this camp together. And, and turn on each other. And start to, like, yeah, because they're fighting with each other. And They already are, but yeah, they are fighting with each it's, other. It's the best and, um, you know, maybe they'll just, um, you know, have some kind of, like, They'll they'll kill each other and then we'll we'll slowly be rid of this problem that our government won't take seriously. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that is true. Like you, you know, government has a very hands off approach to right wing everything. Not that I'm saying it's a good idea for law enforcement to go in blazing. It's not, but I mean, you can get away with just about anything. Uh, short of murder, and even murder isn't really off the table if you are an armed right wing insurgent in this country. It's been that way ever since Waco. So, anyways, um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, I guess that's it. It's so, good dildos. To be back. Yeah, keep the yeah, dildos coming. Yeah, dildos is the final word of this episode. So, <laughs> we'll be back next week. We are the